This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. What does the world think about America's race problems? There are some uh, reports uh, on the Chinese press saying that uh, even 90% of the population has changed its perception about uh, uh, America after these uh, racial attacks. Coming up in this episode of Colors. When we met, she was a 17-year-old dreamer from El Salvador. When we met, I was working as a cleaner in the building where WTOP and La Mera Mera were established. That's right. You were coming every day with the big trash can, <laughs> trash bags, cleaning solutions. Dusting out the desk and everything. She's 24 now and no longer dreaming. In those seven years, you transformed from essentially a janitor to now you're running the La Mera Mera radio station here. I oversee the daily basis operation of the station. That's pretty big. I mean, that's the story of Carla Reyes. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is Tara White. I am an African-American woman. My name is Lily Quiroz, and I'm a Mexican-American living in Washington, D.C. My name is Sue Ann Lee, and I'm Korean-American. I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black, and this is Colors. This week, Vice President Kamala Harris went on a very important trip to Latin America. Her objective, in part, was to begin the process of dealing with the root causes of migration, in the countries of origin, including corruption, crime, and violence. These issues, for many years, have driven untold thousands of people to come to the U.S., many illegally. But during her trip, she made a speech. And during that speech, she said something that surprised a lot of people. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. This is a highly and politically charged issue. 
On Colors, we don't take a political side or even discuss politics, unless they come up in the course of our dialogue. The reason those comments are important is because of our guest, a young Latinx woman whose family, years ago, made the decision to come to the U.S. And she is a shining example of how coming to the U.S. can change your life for the better. We'll take a look at the optics of Vice President Harris's don't come comments later in the podcast. But first, our conversation with Carla Reyes. Carla, we met uh, some years ago. How long ago was that? Was it five years or six years or how many years ago was that? I believe there's seven years ago, in 2014. And I want to explain the reason why you're on the program today is because I believe, and many people have said this in life, that if you want to do something, you have to work hard and go get it yourself. You can't wait for someone to give you something. You have to go get it yourself. And exactly. I want you to tell our audience what you were doing when we met. Well, when we met, I was working as a cleaner in the building where WTOP and La Mera Mera were established. That's right. You were coming every day with the big trash can, trash bags, cleaning solutions. Dusting out the desk and everything. Yes, that is absolutely amazing. And I say amazing, not because that kind of work is amazing, but what you did in those seven years was you transformed from being essentially a janitor to a person who it's my understanding now is running this radio station here. Uh, Partially running. I I oversee the daily basis operation of the station. That's pretty big. I mean, that's, that's the day to day activities of a radio station. How did you manage to do that? Well, the opportunities presented itself. Uh, my ex-boss quit a few months ago. And uh, since I was the only one that knows basically how things were running here, they were just like, hey, this is an opportunity for you. We trust you. And are you able to handle this? Mm-hmm. I was like, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was afraid at the beginning. But, you know, uh, with the, with time, you get uh, accommodate to it and you get a balance and a point where you can balance everything out and work out with all the pressure. Mm. How did you learn all the things that were necessary to do um, to essentially run the station on a day-to-day basis? How did you learn all that? I think I have this... Well, I say quality, and some people may find it annoying that I, I like to ask when I see something. You know, I used to, my old boss, she, whenever she was doing something, I was like, oh, what you're doing, how you doing? Like, you know, no, don't, not because I want to take over her position or anything, just to know, you know, some. what if something happens? What if I have to cover for you? Just, you know, as I, I just wanted to be, helpful in order if you in case they needed somebody to do this or that i will be able to do it 
How and does... also because I do love working in, a radio, in the radio station. Uh, yeah. So tell me, um, what are the things that you have to do? What What are the, the, the elements of your job now? Uh, I, um, well, I do traffic, which means I'm, I'm in charge of programming all the commercials that goes on air, like every day. Um, sending out production orders, you know, to record these spots for these clients. Aside of that, putting in the contracts that we get from our clients. And, you know, now that my old boss is gone, I over, I took over her part of paying bills, talking about with our nationals clients and uh, part of um, our other operation, if you call it that way. Mm -hmm. So how, (laughs) looking back on, you're 24, 25 years old, right? Yes, twenty-four. That is, that is pretty remarkable um, to be that age to be doing what you're doing, but coming from where you came from, uh, from a professional point of view, and doing what you're doing at a radio station in the nation's capital is ridiculously <laughs> important. I mean, this is great. Um, yeah. So, how does that make you feel? Do you ever sit back and go, "Wow, how, how did I get here"? Yes, I do sit back sometimes and I'm like, damn, I have come a long way because when I was back home, my home country, El Salvador, I never imagined I was going to, at the age of 24, I was going to be working in a radio station and especially doing all the things that I do here. Like, I see, like, I see myself and I was like, I feel like I'm really lucky and blessed to have this type of opportunity that I know everyone has. Yeah. This is really amazing. I am not sure that a lot of people understand just how difficult it is to do what you've done, but you've done it. And I'd like to know, what do you say to people now, if you had the opportunity to talk to people back home in El Salvador and to other people here in the U.S. and anywhere? Who faced- never give up. Never give up. Fight for your dreams, and like never say I can, because when it when when you say I can, it's when um that that's a, that sets up to your mind, and like that puts to your block that you won't be able to cross if you have that mentality. Like I can do this, I can do that. And you always have to be positive and like look forward. Mm-hmm. May I go back a little bit and ask, how did you come to this country and when? I came when I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. I was a, te- a, teenage, a teenager and, you know, things were, weren't looking good back home. So my mom was like, it's time for you to come here. It was a, like, I'm not going to lie. It was a hard change because I have my life Build up over there and coming into a new country, new people, new friends, new everything was a hard adjustment that I had to make. But hey, things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. So you look around and you see all this is going on now down on the border. 
uh, with people trying to get here, and especially with the last in the last few years, there, you know, people were separated from their children and families. And uh, what? How does that make you feel? And what do you? Does it move you to do anything or to say anything uh, to try to get involved to help people? How does all that make you feel and react? Honestly, I. I get, uh, I get where they're coming, you know, like I, I was in that position a couple of years ago, if you said, I just try to put myself in a position, like a neutral position and no comment about it because like sometimes I just don't know much about it, if mm-hmm. you put it that way. So. Do you think it's good that the, these folks are doing this? Because some of it is dangerous. I don't, think, I don't. I don't think it's good, especially if you're sending teenagers, child, because things happen on those roads, and mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you don't know with certainty that those people, those kids, those teenagers are gonna get to the border safe and sound, or like you don't know what's gonna happen to them in the trajectory to get. Here. The United States. Mm-hmm. So they need to be very careful and think about this twice is what you're saying, right? Yes. Yeah. Now you're here in this country. What's next for you? Where are <laughs> you're just a baby? So uh, what's next? I'll finish up, finish up college and then we'll see where life takes me. Okay. What so, opportunities shows up. So what are you studying in college? Uh, human resources management, and that's my major. And I also want um, I want to my minor is communication studies. Mm-hmm. Well, wow! This is again just one of the most ridiculously fortunate things that's happened to me um, and us on the Colors program is to your story because you know we talk to people who have been very very prominent people uh, on this program and. But we also talk to young people. We've talked to teenagers before. We've had a 10-year-old girl on this program. But everybody that we've spoken to on this program has been here and has been essentially in a position where they're comfortable. But you, seven years ago, were how old? I was 18, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 18. I just turned 18. Yeah, so... You, you were at 18, were working as a janitor, uh, and yes. you have, so the point that I'm trying to make here is that your story is the story that all of us should, uh, we all should be inspired by your story. That's what I'm trying to say. We all should be inspired by your story from a janitor to running a radio station, to who knows what. And you're only 24 years old, so who knows what comes next. So wish you the best, whatever you do and wherever you go. Uh, and um, we'll keep we'll keep in touch with you. Anything you want to say before you go? No. Well, thank you for having me, JJ. Thank you for your words and encouragement, always. And, you know, to those young over there listen to that listeners never give up always fight for what you want for what you believe everything it's possible in this life wow thank you so much Carla thank you JJ you're listening to Colors
Uh, I'm Kimmy Yong. Um, I'm a Chinese American. I'm uh, from upstate New York and based in New York City. For so many Asian Americans, our stories and our um, our pain has been largely discounted uh, by the mainstream media, and I, I think that you know we even in you know the beginning when we were working on the railroads, and I, I don't know if you guys know about this uh, the photo called the last spike. Um, yes, which was you know it's 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 all white men celebrating the final spike going into the transcontinental railroad which was largely built by chinese workers and there's not a single chinese person in this photograph um they were not included even though they did most of the work uh and i, I feel that that has largely been um you know what we've seen in media for decades where the stories of asian americans have not been told um and a lot of the stereotypes and tropes have persisted. And so we, we come up today, um, you know, we see a lot of these hateful attacks and violence and pain. And I think it's been surprising for a lot of people, but it's it, it hasn't been that surprising for Asian Americans. We've seen it for a long time. Maybe this is one of the few times that other people have acknowledged it, but it's it's definitely not been the first time that we've felt these kinds of attacks. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. That was our conversation with Carla Reyes, and she is really a wonderful human being and a perfect example of what bootstraps is all about. She had the opportunity to come to this country and to make something of herself, and at age 24, she's certainly done that, but she's not finished, and hats off to her and her family. About that comment that Vice President Kamala Harris made uh, during her trip to uh, Latin America, where she said, don't come. We wanted to drill down a bit on the optics of Vice President Harris making that comment and how it's perceived. So uh, we have Professor William Leo Grand. He's a professor of government in the School of Public Affairs at the American University here in Washington, and he's a specialist on Latin America. Professor Leo Grand, you heard uh, Vice President Harris's comments. Tell me how that squares against Carla Reyes's story? Well, there are literally tens of thousands of Carla Reyes's in the United States, people who came from Latin America, especially from Central America, because of the conflict in the 1980s and then subsequent uh, violence and lack of economic opportunity. And so many of them have made enormous contributions to American society. The problem that the Biden administration faces now is the overwhelming numbers of people who are coming all at once, uh, literally thousands and thousands of people every week. And the southern border just can't um, accommodate it. We can't we can't bring all of those people in. And so while the administration tries to reassemble the pieces of our immigration system that the Trump administration shattered. They're trying to slow down the flow of people coming. The problem is that people are coming because life has become unlivable in some parts of Central America. You have enormous criminal violence. 
you have a lack of economic opportunity, and you have repeated devastation by major tropical storms because of climate change. And all of those factors are driving people to come to the United States. The administration really has to try to do two things. One is to deal with the immediate acute crisis on the border and process people who are coming uh, in accord with the law. And the other is what Vice President Harris's responsibility is, to find a way to address some of these structural problems that developed over many years and are going to take many years to fix, but will eventually give Central Americans real opportunities to prosper at home. Okay, we don't get into politics on this program, but we do do policy on this program because that's a key uh, tenet, a key element in any discussion in this country regarding race today, and it's always been that way. Um, so what then does, what are the optics of her comments to the people here already who came, like Carla Reyes, and other people who heard those comments uh, in other places that are considering coming? Um, what does this do to the idea uh, of, okay, I can go to the U.S. and have a better life regardless of what's going on here in my country? Well, I think clearly the objective is to try to deter people from coming in the immediate future uh, so that the administration can try to put together some sort of a sensible policy both at the border and also, as the vice president said, begin a process of assistance to the governments in the region and to the non-governmental organizations in the region that are working to make life more livable there so that uh, people can stay there. You know, the vice president said, and I think she was right when she said it, that people don't want to leave their home country. Uh, they're forced to leave their home country. And until we address the issues that are driving them out, uh, we're never going to stop this this flow. Yeah. Uh, you know, the United States has always prided itself on on being a country of immigrants, of being the great melting pot. Now, we know that the melting pot isn't quite exactly that, that it's a much more complicated uh, society that we live in, a, a multicultural, multinational, multiracial society. But the world has looked up to the United States as the place where people will be welcome when they're under attack and persecuted in other countries. One of the things the administration really needs to do uh, on the southern border is give people who are claiming political asylum a fair and honest hearing of their case. Mm -hmm. The law requires that. The Trump administration didn't do it, and they used COVID as an excuse. The Biden administration has uh, dedicated itself, has promised that it will do that. But the uh, the numbers of people coming with a legitimate claim, I think, because of the lack of civilian security in the region, it really just overwhelming the system right now. Yeah. You know, Professor, with my na national security portfolio, I'm hearing this a lot, that the administration is simply not dealing with the reality of this and calling it a crisis, which is what it is and uh, dealing with it that way. And I think your suggestions are, are spot on, obviously. Um, so let me ask this question. How much time does the U.S. have to get this right? 
Well, it's a political problem, obviously, for the Biden administration. You can already see uh, Republicans in the Congress criticizing Vice President Harris for not visiting the border as if somehow visiting it would magically make things better. Um, And President Trump demonstrated that an anti-immigrant appeal is politically effective among a certain constituencies in the United States. So as long as this issue is in the headlines, and it will stay in the headlines as long as large numbers of people are coming, uh, it's a political problem for the Biden administration. It will take some time to solve some of the problems in the region to make it possible for people to stay there. So uh, from a political point of view, from a domestic political point of view, it's a really, really tough problem to solve. What is it that I haven't asked you about, about this problem that you think is important for our listeners to know? It's really important for your listeners to understand that a lot of the conditions in the region today are actually, at least in part, the responsibility of the United States. When these region, when the, these countries in Central America were facing conflicts, internal conflicts in the 1980s, the United States saw them as a battlefield in the Cold War. And we poured millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance and fueled conflicts in all three of the northern tier countries, that is to say, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, where uh, most of the refugees today are coming from. Uh, those, those wars uh, continue to, to weigh on those societies, the aftermath, the conflicts of those conflicts. And, and the United States played a major role in fueling conflicts. And so now it seems to me we have a major responsibility in helping rebuild those societies. So I'm going to ask you this, and I know that you don't have all the answers for everything, but I'm going to ask you this as a follow-up to that question is, um, what does it take? What would it take to, to help these countries put themselves back together again after what you have correctly said was a very deliberate attempt back in the Cold War era to use these as as basically proxies or to use their territories um, and for American pragmatism. Uh, so what would it take to put these countries, these societies back together? And is that achievable in the short term? Well, it's probably not achievable in the short term, although one can begin to make some progress, obviously. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of foreign assistance from the United States, uh, both to address some of the immediate problems in the region, the people going hungry, people not having homes because of hurricanes. So very immediate humanitarian assistance, but also assistance aimed at economic development so that these economies can become stronger and offer people real opportunity. Uh, I know that the Biden administration has been trying to recruit some U.S. corporations to invest in the region, and a number have agreed to do it. That's a good thing. That's that's one step forward. The other thing is to address uh, the decaying political situation in the region, if I can put it that way. Uh, Transnational crime, drug smuggling, uh, neighborhood gangs, violent neighborhood gangs are all major problems in the region. Some of the governments there are not only unable to deal with those uh, criminals, but are actually in league 
with some of them. And so uh, we need to do what we can working with honest politicians and non-governmental organizations to try to improve the quality of governments, rule of law, and so on, so that we can tamp down the violence that so many people are fleeing. William Leo Grand, a professor of government in the School of Public Affairs at American University here in Washington and a specialist on Latin America. Professor, thank you. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. That's going to do it for this episode of Colors. If you have any questions or comments, anything you want to say to us, send us an email. We're at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. As a result of last year's racially motivated protest after George Floyd's murder, laws were changed and positions were changed. And some of that pitted police officers and county leaders against each other. We have generally in Montgomery County, it's true in many jurisdictions, a, a, a good police force by many metrics. Tom Hawker is president of the county council in Montgomery County, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. On the other hand, that doesn't mean they there is not a need for reform. The aftermath of the George Floyd murder and the reporting and many of the legal changes that took place in jurisdictions all across the country, including Montgomery County, Maryland, rubbed some police officers the wrong way. And we'll talk about that and what's being done to deal with it. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Just about time to go. But before we do that, before we say our thank yous, there's something that I want to read to you. We got a letter into the studio today, just about four o'clock Eastern time. And the letter was addressed to me, J.J. Green. It did not have a return address on it. It just said Bowie, Maryland, 1504. That's it. Um, When you open the letter up, it says June 8th to WTOP and the address. And it says J.J. Green. I can assure you and all of WTOP that we are all sick and tired of hearing about racism. No podcast on racism. No one believes in systemic racism. Can you explain what it is? Period. Just an excuse blacks use for not improving themselves. Stopped listening to WTOP years ago. Tired of hearing about Black Lives Matter. And then, in parenthesis, there's burn, loot, murder. And it also says next, racism, black crime, thugs, black excuses. I work with people from many countries that immigrated here. They are all doing fine. They don't use race as an excuse. They are not killing, looting, burning. Stop the BS. We don't want your podcast former WTOP fan. Well, a couple things here. One, you say you don't listen. Well, my question is, how do you know about this podcast if you don't listen? Because we do promote this podcast on WTOP. And that pretty much is the only way you would know about this, um, other than being a podcast junkie, which I seriously doubt. 
The other thing is you don't identify yourself. You don't tell us who you are. You don't tell us where you are, but you have a lot to say and a lot of it's very negative and very nasty and that's okay. That's your right. There is a thing called the First Amendment and that is exactly why it's okay for you to do that. It's also something that applies to us too. We have the right and the privilege to do this. And we also, in my opinion, have the obligation to do it for the precise reason that you point out by sending us this letter and saying all these hateful things. There has to be a counterbalance to people like you in the shadows who don't want people to know who you are or where you are, but you want to say these kinds of things. So there will be a podcast. We will continue to talk about race. We will continue to point out hateful, ugly, mean-spirited people who engage in hate speech and all things that essentially are part of the foundation of racism. We will continue to point it out. We will continue to seek out interracial dialogue to stop it. And your letter is proof that we're doing the right thing. We're doing something right. Your letter is absolute proof of that. So thank you for it. I'm JJ Green, and this is Colors. Now, to the pleasant stuff. Thank you. Thanks to Dimitri Sotis, Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Lauren Hamilton, Kevin Stanfield, Jamal Bowens, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Audrey Henson, Tom Howley, Reggie Cross, Trudy Cross, Sean Anderson, Michelle Singletary, Doug Gansler, Ellen Nakashima, Mike Edwards, Joby Warwick, Brennan Hazelton, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. And remember, just keep talking to each other. And most importantly, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.